Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. Today we're going to explore the relevant words of Jesus Christ, how they relate to me, you, our lives. So, enjoy the message. Happy Sabbath and Merry Christmas to you. I am delighted to spend this time again in God's Word together as we uh, concluded our sermon series, Voice, this last week, but today we have an epilogue. It comes from the life of David, a, a little bit more, but in the Christmas season. As we consider this, I'd like to direct your attention to the screen. Emmanuel, today a reading as we start, selected from portions of Matthew, John, Ezekiel, and Revelation. So follow along with me, starting in the first verse of Matthew. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made, and in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she, fa- she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, where the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. I will be an, it will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with them, and He will live with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Lord God, Father, I pray that you would bless us through your Word, 
that you would challenge us, that you would move us, that you would offer us something here in this moment now and you would accept and receive from us an offering. Thank you for the promise of your presence through your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope it doesn't scare you to see the word offering show up in more than one place in your bulletin today. Uh, But it, it occurs to me as we consider our passage and these passages today that offering, uh, this, uh, this notion of offering, it comes in a couple of different directions. Could it be that not only are you invited to give an offering today, but you are invited to receive an offering today? And in fact, this Christmas season makes us think this way just a little bit more possibly. As a little boy, uh, I will tell the boys and girls, those of you that are a little younger in the congregation, you should know that there was a day and time without, of course, internet, without iPads, you couldn't just flip around and just uh, kind of dial up toys and things that you were interested in. Mom, I'm, gonna, I'm going to forward you uh, a, uh, a, just a link. No, no, back in, back in the day when I was a little boy, we would wait through the course of the fall until it came to our doorstep in our mailbox. It was a thick bound book from Sears and Roebuck. This big thing, a lot of pages had stuff on it that I don't even know why they would include that there. It wasn't for children, it wasn't for me, but there, sprawled on the living room floor, open to the toy section, page after page of goodness. I don't know for sure, it's been so long, I, don't, I, I cannot say for absolute certain, but my recollection is that there was a section, multiple pages, just of Tonka toys. Yellow trucks and bulldozers and dump trucks and graders and all sorts of things. Oh, what would you like for Christmas, Dave? Mm, Well, I'll go with something in these yellow Tonka pages. Anything from there would be fine with me. (laughs) Sprawled out on the carpet in the living room floor on his belly, flipping through Sears and Roebuck. If you said, hey, David, Let me ask you this, what would you like? What would you like? Not this David, King David, the David that we've been reading about in 1st and 2nd Samuel that you can find through the first couple of paragraphs of 1st Kings and on into 1st Chronicles for sure. What would you like, David? What's on your wish list? Well, the hints of it, of course, find their way into our hearts as we remember the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel. David is now king. He has unified the kingdom, not just Judah, but Judah and Israel together, and he has now inhabited the city of David, Jerusalem. The palace is set up, but something's wrong because from his perspective, though we could say God is with us, God with us, there's a problem. The ark, I want to bring the ark of the covenant to the city of David, to Jerusalem. I want to bring, go get the ark of the covenant. You know all that we looked at there in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 7, though we didn't really touch on all that much. David wakes up one particular day. You can turn to it there in the 7th chapter of 2 Samuel. 
He wakes up one particular day and through the night he's been sleeping in his palatial bed there in a wonderful palace and maybe he even goes to a spot where he can overlook the city and from where he stands he can see a tent and in it he knows is the Ark of the Covenant and he thinks to himself, here I am in a palace and look at where God is. This is not right. And so he calls Nathan the prophet and he says, look, I, I would like to build a temple, a tabernacle, something permanent, something that is in scale with who God is. I'd like to do that. And Nathan says, well, whatever you got in mind, go ahead, go ahead and do that. But Nathan goes home and is visited by the Spirit of God and he comes back to David and says, actually, actually, this is what God has said to me, that fifth verse of chapter seven. Are you the one, David, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? By the way, I haven't dwelt in a house all this time. I've been out in the wilderness. I've wandered back and forth, a portable tabernacle. Are you really the one to build me a temple? By the way, these uh, passages that we read from today, many of them are mirrored in a book that was written a, well, a while after 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles. So as the writer in 1 Chronicles pens his letter, his history, his document, he's well aware of 2 Samuel. He's read it. He knows it. So that's an interesting thing we'll come back to in a minute. But if you scroll forward and read this exact same, it doesn't ask the question, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? In fact, it says, you are not the one to build me a house. In fact, it goes on to say in Chronicles, when your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. And by the way, a little side note there. As David would be prone, just like you or I would, to read that and think, well, Solomon, my son, he will build the temple. Ah, David, the very first words of the New Testament will be to say, this is the story of Jesus, the son of David. So, oh, David, you can't hear it now, you don't know it now, this longing in your heart, that gift you wish you could unwrap underneath the tree, that you could build a temple for God. Oh, trust me. Be patient. You'll look back on this and realize it was being built. You were participating in God with us deeply. But for now, there's a little dissatisfaction. You'll think it's Solomon. If you ask David, you might go to 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and you'd hear David's voice. You'll see on the screen, King David rose to his feet. End of his life. This isn't even reported in 2 Samuel rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brothers and my people. Just listen to me. You want to know what my wish is? I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest. That's the, the ache of my heart. Rest for the Ark of the Covenant, a place for the Lord that God would dwell with us, that we would have established a house, a home for him, for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. But God said to me, you're not to build a house for my name because you're a warrior and you're a man of blood and my house is to be a house of peace and I'm not going to confuse the two. You want to know what my heart calls out for? It would be to build a house for God. And so David did all but. He engaged with a wide range of resources, stockpiles of 
timbers and precious metals and so on. He engaged by putting his finances into it, his resources, his energies into it, and it was all set, and he will end up telling the people exactly how to build this, but he knows he can't build it. A bit of a disappointment for the life of David. But as we study, there is an interruption in this flow of the heart's cry of David that I want to visit. It's a strange story. It's a story that possibly you've read before and wondered about it. Have you noticed sometimes when we hit those stories that are difficult, we kind of bounce off of them quickly? (laughs) It's actually a story that gives some reason to decide God may not exist. Or if he does, I'm not sure I like him. The very last, the ending of 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24, we could find the exact same story reported, and we'll take a look in a moment, reported in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So if you, if you really want to, 2 Samuel 24, that's where we'll really be, but you could stick the finger right there in 2 Chronicles, or 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and we'll check in there on occasion, remembering that the writer in 1 Chronicles writes sometimes, sometime after 2 Samuel is completed. But here we go. In this, the 24th and last chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. And by the way, as we investigate, I'm going to suggest to you there are three what feel like fairly obvious questions that arise as we go through this reading. The first one starts in this particular verse, but you wouldn't really have the question unless you go read it again then in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. If you jump over there, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, your finger might already be stuck there, you'll notice this. So again, in 2 Samuel 24, it says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So God is causing David to do this action is the way that would read, right? And then the first verse of the 21st chapter of 1 Chronicles. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Uh, What? Uh, Why don't you two writers kind of get together on this? Okay, so 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24 is written, and then I guess 1 Chronicles 21 is a rebuttal. What is it that's happening? And by the way, it'll become even more disturbing when you realize in a little bit that taking the census for some reason was wrong, even sin. So as we read in this 24th chapter of 2 Samuel, God incited David? A couple of things that we need to understand here. First of all, uh, that word incited, inspired, or sometimes translated tempted does not carry with it a pronoun attachment that helps us understand. And so translators, some of you will notice in the translation you read in your pew possibly that it says, it incited David, possibly in your translation. That's because there is no clarity on what that connection is. Did God incite this because God is referred to earlier in the sentence? Or is it that, this, that, that God's anger burning against Israel, that that incites David? Additionally, as we kind of do a little digging, what we notice is, and we see this arise in some places that cause us to trip in our understanding throughout Scripture, 
that the Bible writers of their time, a little bit differently than we would write today, the Bible writers of their time will write without a lot of distinction between passive or active participation. They're perfectly comfortable that David is incited to do something. And if David is incited to do something, that God is a participant in this, whether he is actively participating or passively participating. What does passive participation look like? Well, he is there and he allows it to happen. This, we find this in Scripture in a number of places. You recall, for instance, one example would be the difficulty we have in understanding God's interaction with Pharaoh as the children of Israel leave Egypt. you remember this? There are certain passages in which it is described that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, right? And then there are other passages that say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it's the same writer. And we go to that writer, we say, which is it? Tell us just which is it? And he's saying, I don't, I don't get what your confusion is. God is there. God is stirring through the circumstances. Pharaoh is there, and Pharaoh meets these circumstances, and Pharaoh has his right to his own decision-making, and the actions of God are there, and so Pharaoh is hardened. Who hardened? Well, it's Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but God is involved in all that is happening around, and so he's a participant too. But what you don't have in the mind of the Bible writer is that God reaches in and decides for Pharaoh. Rather, he creates the circumstance in which this happens. So passive, active, the the Hebrew writer would go, I don't even really understand your conundrum. I don't understand where you're having the problem. So the writer of Chronicles would write that it actually is the word adversary, that the adversary of David incited him, stirred up in him this desire to create a census. So is God involved? And the Chronicles writer would say, sure, he's involved. He's involved in all of this. He, and he allows David to do what he will later punish him for. I want to suggest to you as just a side note that if there is anything more at the heart of God then his love for you, which I would argue this is a part of his love for you, but if there is anything even more dominant, it is his complete commitment to your freedom to choose. Your freedom. Is God doing that for you? Uh, He created the environment in which you get to be free. So now all your free choices some way, he triggered by creating the atmosphere where you could be free. And so the Hebrew writer doesn't see any kind of conflict at all. Yeah, there is an adversary. David does the wrong thing. Those opportunities exist because God supplied those, all those opportunities, and God contends with David, and there is a devil, there is a Satan, there is an adversary that would love to talk us into the wrong move. So on the story goes in 2 Samuel chapter 24. So the king says to Joab, 
I'm going to go take a census of Israel and Judah. Take the army commanders. You go, Joab. Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many they are. Joab replies to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops of a hundred times over and may the eyes of the Lord the king see it. But why does the Lord the king want to do such a thing? And already, by the way, Joab, if you follow him, is not entirely a righteous dude. He's not always on the right side of things. And even he sees there's a problem here. Hey, David, are you sure you want to be doing this? But the king's word in verse 4 overrules Joab and the army commanders. And so they leave the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men. They go all over. In verse 9, Joab reports back the number of the fighting men to the king. In verse 10, David was conscious, conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. And in fact, the prophet Gad will come to him and he'll say, yes, you're right. You have done a terrible thing. And now God is giving you three options. You've got three years of famine. That's choice number one. Choice number two, three months, your enemies will win every battle they fight with you. I don't know if they get told that or just to experience it on their own. Or choice number three is you have three days of plague from the hand of God. What do you want? David says, uh, if we're going to suffer, I would rather suffer at the hands of God. I don't know how this is all going to turn out. I just, I just have to keep, I have to come back to submitting to God. Even in my confusion, when I've done the wrong thing, I, let me just come before God. And by the way, if we go through the three years of famine, guess what we're going to be reduced to? We're going to have to go begging the neighbors, and they will be seen as our Savior. If there are three months of being beaten up at war by all of our enemies, they're going to be seen as the victor. Let's keep this between us. Let us submit ourselves to God. That's the choice I want to make. But before we go any further, one probably has the question, wait, time out. What is the problem? What is so wrong about counting people? Is that, is that where we are, that God doesn't want us counting one another? This feels like some weird childhood schoolyard problem game where somebody's just trying to pick a fight. That's, that's, that's this God of yours? Ah, there's something deeper here, and I'd like to take us through a little bit carefully this notion of why, in fact, it might be that God doesn't want this happening. First of all, in that culture and in that time, it was only right for a man to count and number things that were his possession. To be off in your neighbor's field, counting up, taking taking account of your neighbor's livestock, that was a violation. So if you start numbering the people, what you are saying is these people are mine. These are mine. By the way, you, you remember who he asked to go and do this. Joab, his general, and other army commanders in previous times, which by the way, taking a census is not wrong. It happens in other places in the, in the Old Testament. 
That's not wrong. It isn't wrong to count people. It's the motivation behind it can be a problem. And to not acknowledge what is going on can be a problem. I wonder if there's any possibility that on occasion we start mistaking what is God's for what is ours. This very building. My ministry. Oof. Do you remember Samuel's warning to the people when they asked for a king? You're asking for a king, but here's what's going to happen. He's going to claim everything is his. He will conscript your sons. Why do you think he's counting up how many there are that are of fighting age? Because David, fresh off of victories with the Philistines in the book of Chronicles, is looking around and he's seeing, okay, so we have prospered. How well have we prospered? Let's, first of all, let's be able to name this. Under my kingship, let's talk about how well we've prospered. Beyond that, we've done pretty well, but we're going to probably want to go to some more wars, and so let me find out exactly how many men of fighting age, because we're going to be calling on you. By the way, another reason to take a census is to know how and who I should tax. The people, all the stuff, the recipe for what Samuel said, oh, be careful about inviting yourselves into a, into a world where you have a king that is not God because they will forget that these are God's people and they'll think they're their people. See, the other census taking was always done by the priests and it was to count God's people. When David goes to count how many people do I have? Joab knows it's wrong, and he's not that great a guy. David knows it's wrong. Probably one of the more redeeming qualities of David is how quick he is to see his fault and how readily he takes his faults back to God. But then we have our third question. Because what's going to happen is he's going to pick plague. I want three days of plague. Let's go with that. David is not the one who will die. I don't know how he suffers under the plague. But in the reporting of the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel, 70,000 Israelites die. Wait. Time out. In fact, as this story goes on, David will actually kind of go and argue with God. God, wait a minute, time out. What is happening here? And he'll use the metaphor of a shepherd with his sheep. The sheep shouldn't suffer. I'm the shepherd. Visit this plague on me and my family. If you're in his family, you might be going, wait, whoa, whoa. I, I want, I'm a sheep. Ba, 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 ba. There's something else that's going on here. In the previous times that a census has been taken, there is a reason and it is a part of a spiritual conversation. And so what the Israelites should know and some of these Israelites do know is there is one way that a census should be taken. It's taken by the priest and is to count God's people. And it is a part of the structure of all that they do to recognize the atonement that is to come. That's and at one minute, that's, that's putting people right again. As they come out of Egypt, they are in such separation from God, and God gives them all sorts of practices to practice beforehand the meaning of the cross to come, the Christ to come. 
And what, what, what the census taking that we're going to read about in Exodus chapter 32, what we're going to notice is that what is described is we're going to take account of all those who have made the trade of our lives for His. Put better, we're going to count up all of those who have accepted the Lamb slain for your life. All you remember it in that day that we were seeking liberation from Egypt and we said, look, 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 there is an angel of destruction that is coming and at the end of this we are going to be released into the wilderness, we're going to be free, we're going to be able to go, but before that moment, if you're on God's side, wipe the blood of the lamb across your doorposts as a sign and a symbol that says, I am a child of the lamb. So when we count up, we're going to count who here is a child of the lamb. The way we're going to do this, because if you, if you could kind of scroll all the way forward to a cross on Calvary, what you'll understand is the God of the universe gives his everything for you, takes your sins and dies crushed for you. And so what we're going to do is you're going to give all of you for all of him, and it's not anywhere near a fair trade. It's a ridiculous trade. But we're going to start practicing that now. Go with me to Exodus chapter 30 and verse 12. It says this. It's all in the context of practicing these symbols of atonement, being at one again with God. So when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. And then, did you hear it? And then no plague will come on them when you number them. Fascinating that David has said, you know what, out of the three options, let me take the plague. Ironically, it is exactly what God warned. When you are participating in this census, and it's, frankly, it's a little bit like when David brought the ark to Jerusalem. You recall there was a point at which thousands or a handful died. Previously, thousands died because they looked in the ark, right? These are things they knew, but they were being flippant. They had turned the Ark of the Covenant, this, this inhabitation of God, into something that was theirs and not His. Rather than saying, we are yours, they were saying, you are ours. And once again, this whole process of census, scholars suggest part of the reason David would take this census is that the voice of the people were, we need to compete. That's why we wanted a king in the first place. Where are we at? How do we stack up against the enemy, against the others? And it's us in battle against them rather than it is God who is our Savior and we fight under His banner. And so a simple little symbol had been included. Whenever you're counted, be counted for the coming Lamb. And the way we'll do this is we're going to take this tiny little offering, this tiny little offering, and you clink that into a plate as you are counted. You can hear the count of the redeemed. And in that moment, God's people traded themselves into being David's people. Count me. Some of them probably not even wanting to, but 
there's a lot more here than just a simple reading of a God who is really anxious to send plagues. Fascinating. David will say, Lord, God, stop this plague. But did you notice in the reading of the story, the plague stops before David asks? If you find the words, verse 14, David's in, in deep distress. He will in verse 17 say, I've sinned, this angel, I've sinned, I've sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. Have they, what have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. But did you notice what happens right before it? Right before it, God stops this angel of plague and says, enough, enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And you could maybe read this story and not know where this is. I got to tell you where this is. In this moment, the voice of God says, stop, stop, I can handle this no more. Stop, and the angel freezes in a spot. Do you know what that spot is? It will be the future temple of God. This is where where Solomon will build the house of God. But you know where that is? It's the spot that Abraham had been lifting the knife over Isaac to sacrifice him, and God calls down, stop. I think you get it. I think you've gotten it. Maybe you've gotten it. This is all about my sacrifice for you, not your sacrifice of Isaac. I wanted to invite you into my heart because you're the father of this people that need to know a time is coming, a savior is coming, an offering is coming. But you need to to understand. You're going to sit December 21, pre-Christmas, 2019, you're going to sit nicely dressed up in your Sabbath clothes as you are oft to do, and you might miss it, singing, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel, singing Silent Night, you could miss it. This is not about commercialism, this is about an offering, an atonement. of a moment where the God of the universe who so desires to be yours gives everything. But in that moment, he refuses to take from you. Instead, he says, what's what's the smallest large thing you could give me? A half a shekel? How about your sinful heart? That the world would look on and say, what a waste of a human being. And God will say, that's exactly the trade I want. King David sprawled across the floor, leafing through the Sears robot catalog. He wants one thing. He wants Emmanuel. He wants a home for God. He wants to participate in that, an offering. And before we leave today, I just want to talk for a second about this idea of offering. And I want to go kind of an unusual spot, an unusual place. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk about the theology 
of the church. Sometimes when we talk about the church, what we mean is a time of day. We're going to church uh, between here and here. Not even necessarily a place, it's a time, it's a thing. It's a, we'll sing, we'll pray, we'll preach. Sometimes when we say the church, we mean an organizational structure. Sometimes when we say the church, we mean God's body distributed throughout the earth. Sometimes when we say the church, we mean the physical building. I've got, to, I've got to admit something to you. If you were to scroll back through all that I've said over the course of my life, embarrassingly put it out there, in front, I would have probably at times even mocked the notion that the building matters at all. That's part of what's interesting about David. He is so compelled, I want to create a space. And I want to suggest to you that that, while it does not save you, is not nothing. There, it doesn't have to save you for it to be something powerful and important. I, I recall a conversation when I first arrived here in this role with a young man in college who, uh, I don't, I'm not sure he understood what my role was at that time, but we were talking, we were talking about the church, and he knew that a lot of money was being raised to build this section that's, that's now, you can walk into, some of you were in Sabbath school earlier today, and, and he said to me, you know, I just, I don't quite get it with all of the pain and the suffering in the world, that seems like an amazing waste, what a terrible use of funds and finance. And, and, and for something that's only used one day a week, it's a terrible use. And I smiled inside a little bit at that moment because I knew he didn't know. I think that sometimes we are very flippant about the things we say are God's and minimize the power of his place. I want to share with you some of the things that I think are powerful and important about this space. And by this space, I'm including the parking lot. I'm including the grounds and the yards. I'm including the Sabbath school rooms. I'm including the fellowship hall. I'm including this space here. The closets. Oh my goodness. If you talk to the average staff member of ours and ask him, what would, you ask, what would you ask for? What would you ask for, Jay? Hey, could we have more closets, space, storage space, please? We're just, people are storing things in their homes and trailers and all kinds of places. We could do with a little more. Well, what about it? I want to suggest to you that there is an awful lot going on here that is a, an offering to God. And I would like to invite you in. I believe that this building gives us an opportunity to make a statement about the prominence of God in our lives. I believe it allows us to create our identity in this community that we care in a world that increasingly does not believe God exists at all. We care about the name of God. And it's not because we're trying to just make a nice, comfortable place for ourselves. It's because we would like to lift God up in our community. I think it goes well past that. It allows us to make a statement of our mission. One of the things that we are saying more and more and repeatedly is the call of our church is to make friends. To start with, our world is at enmity with God himself. And if we can take a space and create more opportunity for friendship with God, that is a huge thing. 
to add value to our neighbors and to our community by having places that even those who dislike Jesus could come in and make use of and feel good. I have this theory, for somebody who's not walking with Jesus, the next best thing is to walk with somebody who's walking with Jesus. You see how that works. So some of you might even notice that in some of the areas of our new building, it's not overtly spiritual speak that plasters the wall so that our community can draw close, so that our mission of making friends with others and with God can be pursued. It gives us even greater opportunities to allow Jesus into our lives. And it allows us to have a great place to bring others who would go someplace with me and aren't naturally going to go someplace with Jesus. If you've not been, Christmas Eve, you ought to be here. It's stunning. Don't come on time because you'll struggle to find a parking spot and a seat. And if you come in and you look around and if you know our membership well, what you'll realize is these are a lot of these folks I don't see here ever any other time. But we have a space to invite our community into. Uh, don't let it be said that we only ever interact with our community when they will come into our home. No, we need to be out there doing more. But you need to understand something. Much is happening here. You could possibly be missing it. I took uh, some data from the average week at our church. Just a, just a regular week. I just grabbed a week from our calendar and took a look at it quickly. And Jay, what I noticed is that in one particular week, seven days, we booked 95 different events in our facility. If you looked at which hours of the day that occupies, seven days a week, on average, 10 hours of the day. All kinds of stuff. Some of them for our community, some of them for our university, some of them for our school system, for Bible study groups, for small groups, for health ministries, for fellowship meals, for bereavement for people who have lost a loved one. All sorts of stuff. And let me tell you what that doesn't even include. That doesn't include what we're doing now. We kind of assume we're going to have this space for that. It doesn't include our church services. It doesn't include our Sabbath schools for our children all around. Not all those man hours of use of this facility. It doesn't include our counseling center that when it's open, is open from 8 a.m. in the morning until 7 p.m. at night. It doesn't include a kitty campus that is a safe place for children to be from our community. It sometimes is the doorway that people first walk into of our church. What an awesome thing, by the way, for people who aren't even sure they believe in Christ yet to say, I tell you, a safe place. The Collegedale Church safe place. Every business day. It doesn't include, I didn't count the numbers of that particular week. There was a lock-in for Pathfinders. That would have skewed the numbers, so I didn't include that. I didn't include, and there's on and on and on it goes. What I'm saying to you is God is blessing our community because of this space. And I believe that's what this space is for, I think it's part of what you and I are here to do. I bring it up for a couple of different reasons, the, the most important of which is I believe before you leave here today, God wants to say something to you. He wants to say this, there is an offering that is happening right now. I am offering all of me for you. And some of us, 
Some of us have been withholding our heart to Jesus. It's possible that you could come regularly, dress up nicely, be here because it's a cultural thing or because you came with somebody else who seems to really be committed to doing it. But Jesus wants to whisper into your heart right now, no matter what, look, don't go through this Christmas season. Don't leave this place today. When you see the poinsettias, when you hear Christ is born, just understand there is a reason. It's you. He's come here for you. Oh, please, I beg of you to consider the trade, to accept his offering for you and to offer yourself in trade. It's more than that. David, at the end of his life, he knows he's not going to give, build the sanctuary, but he has made all kinds of plans, and he has stockpiled resources, and he turns to the people who are listening to him some of his last words, and in the 29th chapter, the fifth verse, he says, now, I ask you, who is willing? Who's willing to consecrate yourself to God today? Who would give your heart? Who would say, I am at one with him? I am his people, not yours, David. I am his And then the leaders and the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. I believe today's question for you and for me through these pages of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles and on into the New Testament is this, Emmanuel has come with us. And he is offering you a trade. I, I think you need to know he wants your heart. I think you need to know in this story there in the 29th chapter, part of what those individuals listening, when David says, okay, so who's, who's willing to be all in? Some of them work tirelessly. Some of you have been withholding your energies from God, and you need to be coming like somebody did just last week to me and say, hey, I feel like because I was a little burned out a little bit in the church that I had been in, we moved to this community, and I came, and I just kind of held back, and I feel like I've withdrawn too far. I need to be active. I need to be involved. I believe that's God's plan for you, to find your way of being involved in what he's doing, and I'll tell you this too. Some of you read the bulletin, some of you know, and I, I always feel queasy a little bit about bringing up offering to ask you, to say to you, to look you straight in the eye and say, I believe you should be giving something to God's cause in the in, in the plate that wanders around. Yeesh, that feels weird to me. I don't like that at all. But there are days I wonder if I'm withholding a blessing from you by not being more bold and saying, look, we don't know how things will go. I, you've heard me say, Jay's sitting right here, a church administrator in the, in the third row. December is dicey for us because a third of our budget is given in December. And so every December we're kind of like, oh. Somebody said to me after this earlier service, I'm going to see you in January and I'm going to say, oh, ye of little faith. I'm saying, ah, that's not it. I have faith. I have faith that God can provide. I have faith partly because God has so consistently provided. But it, as it turns out, very often he's used you <laughs> and me. And so maybe it's a good time to say, the heart of David, we've been exploring that would give so much for a place for God. There is great work we have to do in this community. It's between you and God, not you and me. But I invite you over these last few days of December to pray over it. 
some of you I know have been pouring your resources out for the cause of God. And you are a tremendous blessing to our community. Some of us have been just showing up and wondering for a while, and God may be speaking to you. This I know, you should not make it out of this space today as we close without the offering. His for you. And yours for him. Lord God, thank you so much. Where do we start? Thank you for the reminder of this season, who you are and what you've done, that you've come for us. You are our rescue, this Emmanuel Jesus. Oh, how amazing to consider. Son of David brings us hope to know that you work through humans, even frail and faulty humans like David, like me, like us. So as David's story reminds us now, we pour out an offering to you. As David would say, on that threshing floor in 2 Samuel 24, as the owner offers to give away his land to David, David will say, oh no, I must pay full price for I refuse to sacrifice something that has cost me nothing. Lord, I don't know what your interaction with us is going to cost each person. Someone here has been a little stingy with you possibly and needs to just loosen up and realize everything is yours. Maybe there's someone who should give financially. Somebody here, maybe they are giving an awful lot, but they're just sitting back and watching and your great resources of human capacity and talent and ideas are sitting on a shelf somewhere and you would call us out and say, I'm asking you, please give that to me. And surely as we sit here today or listen from home, someone within the sound of my voice has yet to really give their heart to you. And so in this moment, with a simple gesture of a raise of a hand, I just invite you, if you're feeling called to offer your heart to Jesus Christ today, just go ahead and raise it. You feel comfortable and free to raise your hand and say, Lord God, I am all in for this trade. Praise God. Praise God and Lord, help those individuals who have done that for the very first time to come talk with someone who can help them in their journey to be alive in you. And so, Emmanuel, live with us. Amen. And a Merry Christmas. We hope to see you Christmas Eve right here. But if not, if you're traveling, drink deep from time with family, sing an extra Christmas carol, And when you hit the word Emmanuel, wink at somebody who doesn't understand what you're doing (laughs) and give your heart and you're all to God.